Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest Beef and Lamb New Zealand Seen and Heard podcast. Uh, for this one, we're delving into a topic that's certainly pretty hot, no pun intended at the moment, which is the whole issue of agriculture, greenhouse gases, um, Hiwaka Ekenoa, uh, the Zero Carbon Act and all that sort of thing. So I'm joined today by uh, two people who have been working pretty closely with Beef and Lamb on this, and I'll get them to introduce themselves. First one, and it's just an order of they joined the podcast, no particular order, but Adrian Macy, uh, welcome along. Adrian, what's your, your background in this topic and what's your day-to-day role? Well, thanks very much. Um, well, my background was I got into climate change when I was with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and I was our first climate change ambassador from um, 2006 onwards. And then I got involved in uh, chairing part of the climate change negotiations. And uh, since then, I've been at Victoria University in a couple of roles. And the, the main one is uh, as an adjunct professor at the New Zealand Climate Change Research Institute. So currently doing uh, research around where the science and policy meet, the science policy interface or don't meet, which is mm-hmm. often the case, and particularly on the on the methane metrics uh, measurement issue. And I do a bit of um, public speaking and media work on, on, on climate change too. All right. Thank you. And Dave Frame, same sort of thing. What's your, uh, what, how are you involved in the subject? Um, well, I, uh, I guess I'm a, I'm a, a climate physicist who, who also has worked in policy in the past and, um, and did a philosophy major in my undergrad days. So I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in that intersection between science and policy um, from a bunch of angles. And um, for me, this work grew out of the work I was doing with Miles Allen on cumulative carbon emissions back in the 2000s. Uh, when we noticed that that short uh, short-lived gases didn't fit the the um, the net zero framework, um, so it's kind of a natural extension of where we were going then. Yeah. And so both of you, I mean, obviously this is a subject of interest to Beef and Lamb New Zealand, and and we've been working with you a wee bit. Do you work with uh, central government in that sort of role, policy ministries, that sort of thing? Yeah, um, we talk to uh, a range of different um, actors. You know. Uh, not only government departments, but also organisations like the um, Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment's Office and um, the uh, Productivity Commission and people like that, as well as uh, various government departments. Um, uh, so uh, there's there's a lot of people with interest in this space, and I think um, I kind of think the more voices they hear from, the better. Oh yeah, just add also, I, mean, I have quite a bit of contact with. Uh... Uh, parliamentarians, whether it's um, government ministers or or just uh, MPs, and there's a there is a real there's a real thirst out there actually for uh, understanding this stuff, and it's it's still not all fully understood. So I think things like things like this are really useful. Awesome. Well, that's a good, perfect segue then, in because I want to start with some of the the basic concepts. We've got some material and video and printed copy about it, but it's a good chance to go over it again. Um, I'm not sure who wants to answer this one, but Start at the base. The greenhouse gases we're we're dealing with. What are they? What's their impact? Why are they important? Why are we concerned about them? Well, the the um the 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 main gas is carbon dioxide. Um, that's the gas that's responsible for most of the warming globally. Um, far and away the most important gas, and it's um it's really the pulling of carbon atoms out of the fossil reservoir and emitting them as CO two that drives most of the warming. Um, and well behind that, and that's responsible for the best part of a degree of warming to date. 
uh, well behind that, there uh, is the second and third most important gases globally are uh, um, methane and um, and nitrous oxide. Uh, and uh, so yeah, so carbon dioxide is responsible for about one degree of warming, uh, methane about 0.3 of a degree of warming or 0.4 depending on on which model you believe, and uh, nitrous is responsible for about 0.1 degree of warming. So CO2 globally is the clear leader. Um, and of course, these things behave differently. Um, CO2 and, uh, and nitrous are both accumulating gases or stock gases that don't break down very fast. And methane breaks down quite fast. Uh, and so it, it contributes the same way in terms of, uh, as the other gases, in terms of trapping um, radiation. Uh, and warming the earth, but it, it because it breaks down, it means that the dynamics of that behavior are somewhat different. And so this is where the, the term, the split gas approach comes from, that was not just in their equivalent warming impact, but it's the fact they have that different physical, chemical behavior? Yeah, yeah. Uh, methane's a reactive gas, which means it reacts with other things in the atmosphere, and it, and it breaks down over about 10 years or so. It has a lifetime of about 10 years in the atmosphere. Um, and carbon dioxide hangs around um, for a range of timescales because there are a range of processes that scrub it out. But basically somewhere between about 25 and about 40% of the um, emissions of CO2 that come out of the tailpipe of your car will be in the atmosphere in a thousand years time. Uh, so an appreciable fraction of it is in effect permanent by human, human standards. And in most situations, uh, we would regulate short-lived pollutants differently from long-lived pollutants. And for a range of reasons, many of them poor, we ended up muddying these things and blurring them together back in the Kyoto days through the idea of carbon dioxide equivalents. And, um, and, and I don't think many of the people involved in climate policy realise how unusual it is how strange it is to actually uh, mix things up in this way. Um, but but it's become the norm in climate policy, uh, even though it's probably it was not best practice. It's certainly not best practice in terms of environmental regulation. So I want to come back to that, and, and I think we're going to spend a lot of time on that whole concept of, of the split gases and the different effects. One thing I just want to clarify a bit more, you talked about I think the warming contribution of carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, methane being different amounts. Was that, what were the the the, the quantities? Was that degrees per year? Or yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, no, it's degrees in terms of, so um, if you if you figure out what the warming due to elevated levels of CO2 is globally since mm -hmm. 1750, yeah. uh, which is one of the questions we looked at in chapter seven of the IPCC, uh, you get about a degree of warming from carbon dioxide globally. That is fossil carbon driving the temperatures up. You get about 0.3 degrees or 0.4 degrees from methane and its um, daughter products, pr probably 0.4 if you count all the daughter products. And you get about 0.1 degrees from um, nitrous. Now, people adding that up are going to go, hang on, that's, um, that's already your one and a half degrees. Um, but actually, we're all we're masking half a degree or so of warming by aerosol forcing um, that is uh, comes about through 
dust through industrial processes through uh combustion of um coal with sulfur in it and things like that um and so there are things that are offsetting our warming currently uh, that if we pulled all those out we would actually unmask a bunch of warming um so, so how do they offset it is that through are they just yeah through sun getting to the so, surface or uh, a couple of main ways, aerosols interact with the climate through um, creating cloud condensation nuclei. So they seed clouds, little aerosols, they places for water droplets to form and form into clouds. Um, they also backscatter radiation directly. Um, so sunlight comes in, pings off this little, um, you know, tiny atmospheric billiard ball and back out to space. Um, so uh there are there are a few different processes but aerosols don't last very long in the atmosphere um they get scrubbed out by rainfall over a fortnight or so uh, so they're in effect a short-lived climate forcing we normally treat them differently to the greenhouse gases um for quite good reasons um but uh but we kind of got in a habit early of treating methane the same as the long-lived gases even though actually it, it, it does have quite a distinct role um, and that's really where I see uh, this conversation scientifically having originated is that we we realize that there's a linear relationship between um, cumulative emissions of carbon dioxide and warming. And that's a relationship that a bunch of papers in 2009 uh, showed. And I was uh, one of the people working on that along with um, Miles Allen was leading a lot of that research. We showed that in the mid 2000s. And, Papers came out in 2009, and after that, um, the, 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 one of the things that troubled us was that the that methane didn't fit that paradigm. There was one of the other papers making this point, kind of fiddled with things to talk about budgets to 2050, and if those budgets are still going up, then you can kind of just about almost fit CO2 equivalents into that framework, and that was a Mainzhausen et al. paper, paper by a guy called Malta Mainzhausen. Uh, Miles and I were also also authors on that, um, but we I guess we found the you know it made sense, but it wasn't physically a very generalizable result, uh, and so we started working with a student Neil Bauman on sh the role of short-lived gases uh, uh, in warming, and had a paper in Nature Climate Change in 2012 on that topic, um, and the work that later turned into GWP Star kind of spun out of that that material saying, well, that, 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 that CO2 equivalence is a poor way of accounting for short-lived gases within a warming context. And that that is absolutely correct, that, that, that it is a poor way of accounting for short-lived gases in a cumulative emissions context and, or in a warming context. And so um, there had been other work on other metrics um, Keith Shine, uh, who's a fellow of the Royal Society, one of um, he's a Regius professor. He was given his chair from the Queen. He's a very uh, esteemed climate researcher in, in the UK, and he'd come up with a different metric for thinking about climate change in the mid 2000s, and that was on uh, global temperature potential. And so, by looking at Keith's work and and working with Keith, uh, Miles and others came up with this GWP star. Uh, idea, which is basically a way of taking G, taking the traditional approach, GWP, global warming potential, and making it fit for purpose for a flow gas, for a gas that is reactive and breaks down over a decade or so. 
and and what it does is come up with um, it, it turns out that the the main effect of methane on temperature is governed by the rate of change of emissions over about a 20 year period. There is a small amount of warming that that more or less accumulates with the emissions, uh, but the main term is that is that rate of change term. Uh, and and GWP star has been through a couple of uh, iterations in the four or five years since it's been first discussed. Um, and it actually does a, a really good job of uh, of following the temperature um, of, of uh, modeling the temperature effects of a time series of gases uh, if you apply it to methane. And this is shown in um, the IPCC in Chapter 7 and Figure 7.22 of the last IPCC report, um, where it can be seen that, that GWP star and the temperature curve for a given portfolio of gases is, is really well matched. And um, putting GWP 100 uh, into a cumulative framework, or even worse, GWP 20 gives you silly outcomes. So, um, so it's a much better way of matching emissions time series to temperature than anyone has come up with in the past. All right. I've been busy ticking off a few of the things I was going to ask later on because you've gone on and covered <laughs> off. I'm used to dealing with farmers and I have to draw words out of them slowly but surely. <laughs> but I'm going to rearrange things a wee bit because I was going to start talking about policy, but you've brought up the GWP star. Mm. And I don't know which one one you talk. That's that's what we're going to dig into more about more appropriately. Too. So methanes are used the term, I think, of flow gas. So yeah. what's the, the term for carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide well, that, that it, aren't? It's a stock gas. So stock it, gases and flow sometimes gas. in pollution uh, environmental science, people talk about stocks and flows. It's you know just yep. a phrase we use in engineering as well. Um, a bathtub full of water is a stock, and a tap is a flow. You know the sure. um, and uh, and CO two uh, hangs around, it accumulates, um, and so it tends to um, it tends to um, uh, well, it, we call it a long lived climate forcing. Um, but we sometimes use words stock and methane is much, the, the effects of methane much more closely follow the flow. They do technically follow the stock, but the stock is governed by the flow. So we're going to come back and talk about some of what that means in terms of application to farms and to industry and the country as a whole. But what's the GWP, the alternative or the original one was GWP 100. Who That's wants right. to explain what that is, why it's different? Uh, yes, it is. Um, it, it's the time integrated radiative forcing of one kilogram of some gas compared to CO2. So what that's doing is measuring the amount of radiation, the amount of energy that is trapped by that kilogram of whatever gas over a hundred year period compared to CO2. And now the, that might seem a very obscure and strange uh, quantity. Um, it, it is. It was the reason people took this approach was that they thought 100 years was roughly a good time to think about the consequences of your actions. And there had been precedents in the uh, treatment of different gases or different um, species, chemical species, in the ozone problem. And the people who came up with GWP uh, with global warming potentials had been working just a few years before on ozone destruction potentials, the ability of some chemical species to destroy a given amount of ozone. And they put that on a common reference scale. So they tried to apply the same logic and they did 
to to um, non CO2 gases. And many of the gases they actually were thinking about were those industrial gases, CFCs, HCFCs, and and so on. Um, the original IPCC report, uh, which introduced the idea of the um, of the uh, uh, GWP, um, actually made a point of saying that um, the, um, that, that this was just a one way of doing things, and uh, and that it, it it shouldn't necessarily become the default, but it it did. Um, yeah. Yep. So maybe add a couple yeah, go for it. Of, just a, maybe three points of a bit of background here, um, which is relevant to when we get from the science, which I would note that the science that Dave's talking about is not contested. No. Um, and also, you can also, again, it's the analysis, the policy relevant analysis is new, but the atmospheric physics uh, behind this are not new. So the, the analysis that, and the new stuff that's been going on has all been around understanding how this physics needs to be applied to yeah. the result of, of reducing warming. I just make three points. First point, a really important thing that was not understood when we first started out these negotiations was that what matters is the cumulative long-lived gases. That was around 2009. There was a very good graph that came out of the IPCC on that. Previously, we thought, oh, well, all we have to do is just reduce emissions to a certain level, and that's fine. But no, the answer is that if you want to stabilise temperature at any level, you've got to stop emitting long-lived gases. Therefore, there is a, there is a budget for it. That, that was new. Um, secondly, I think that this analysis and the conclusions it was leading to, notably that the standard GWP measure was not, a, not appropriate, not accurate, have acted like something like an inconvenient truth. It has uh, caused quite a lot of angst from people who had themselves very, very, especially in Europe, had very, very definite attitudes, for example, about what should happen to agriculture, amongst mm -hmm. other things. And there's been a lot of um, quite heated opposition to this, what is effectively analysis from the science on the grounds that it would it could lead to ethically dubious outcomes. Whereas I think my view certainly is that how you measure something in itself is not doesn't embody ethics. It's how you apply it where the ethics come in. You measure what you consider is important to measure, but it's only when you apply it that you have your ethical choices. And the third point I would make, which I think is particularly relevant to New Zealand, uh, is that there's been an incredible amount of inertia around the status quo. Um, I haven't quite got to the bottom of that, but I think most of the, um, if you'd like, the, the what I call the official establishment, and by that I mean particularly those involved in advising ministers, um, government officials and others, the scientists working closely with ministers, have been very, very uh, resistant to looking at the implications of this, uh, of this new analysis. And it's I'm not sure you know, how well appraised at the political level uh, our ministers have necessarily been about all this, but the result is that there's been so far uh, extreme reluctance um, to to look at any possible application of this new science. Although you can new analysis, although of course you can see that the split gas target itself is, is some form of acknowledgement. But just to just to 
I remind you, a few, a few days before the um, COP26, the Minister James Shaw uh, was asked about this, and his comment was, well, DWP 100 is, is globally settled, uh, and if we started advocating DWP star, not only would it fall on deaf ears, but we'd be seen as attempting to change the whole global system in order to suit our national industry, and also um, claimed that uh, it would badly affect uh, the industry's reputation. So, I mean, they're the sorts of they're the sorts of attitudes that you have currently, which I think are shared at a political and officials level. So that, to my mind, indicates uh, the territory where, um, if you want to make progress, and you really did need to get engagement and dialogue just to talk all this stuff through and hopefully get a uh, a more rational, warming-centred approach, as distinct from what you could argue is a an emissions-centred approach given that the way we measure emissions, as Dave has pointed out, is not actually consistent with, with their warming. And I think, to my mind, the, the mental shift that will be really useful is to get the government to come on board around the warming approach. It doesn't, it doesn't give anybody a free ride, but it gives you a much more uh, rational approach and it gives you a much more accurate approach at the national level, it's just how far are we progressing towards a temperature goal, which is what Paris Agreement is. So that's one of the key points here. I think you, you have certainly all addressed it. That the key thing here is not the emissions themselves, but it's the warming that we want to. Um, from what you're saying, why is that taking a while to filter through at sort of central government policy level? And I may regret asking this question, but is that? Well, it's partly because they're not used to thinking of warming. They're used to thinking. So um, this is where this whole idea of the GWP 100 gets in the way, because People use that to make the comparison, but it's lousy for warming. And so once you actually have these warming targets that are fairly nearby in, in your legislation, you have to think about warming as well as emissions. And uh, the, the, you know, the, the science of this is really clear. We had very few arguments about these points in Chapter 7. We had huge arguments with other working groups on this point. Because, you know, for a range of reasons, including the perception that New Zealand was being self-interested. But I think that was, um, you know, New Zealand is, is far from alone here. We just happen to be thinking about it. Um, I find it bizarre that people could say we should, that people could, you know, serious political actors should say we should stop thinking about warming uh, because it's inconvenient for other people and that we might um, do well out of it. That's a really, you know, the IPCC wrote a, a special report on one and a half degrees, not on 350 gigatons of carbon. It's it's not all about emissions. Most people talk about one and a half, two degrees, and that's what they have in mind when they talk about climate change. To turn around and say we're not allowed to think that way if it might suit us is is certainly not acting in the national interest, and it's it's poorly uh, grounded scientifically. So I, I'm afraid I, I find it thoroughly unconvincing for people to say that we should uh, refrain from thinking in terms of warming. Okay, so I'm actually gonna pull up a question we had for later on is around, it's about warming. Um, we're gonna talk about the various emissions pricing structures, et cetera, which are not about the emissions themselves. It should be about the warming impact, but if it's just about warming, and you talked about convincing people of various things, why 
is, should agriculture get involved in this? I mean, why can't agriculture just say no to emissions pricing and dealing with warming and these sorts of things? It's um, it, it still comes up from time to time that yeah, we can talk about all the minutiae, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Why do we bother? Well, let's put let's put this in a bit of context. Um, what is going to happen increasingly as we go towards 2050, and probably countries are nowhere near. Uh, aligned with the 1.5 degrees is more and more pressure on uh, each country to keep reducing its emissions to, and it'll come under the word ambition, do more and more. And it is all, I mean, one clear point, it is always a good idea to reduce methane as it is with any other greenhouse gas. It's not a good idea to do it if you're trading it off for CO2 but it is always a good idea to reduce methane. And at some point, of course, when you reduce faster than a particular very slow rate, you are going to be reversing uh, some of the warming that methane has previously caused. But that in itself, that in itself is still a good. It is not, to my mind, a reason to say, oh, fine, we'll, we'll just get to the point where we're not warming from methane anymore. That's it. Uh, brush our hands, um, you know, leave it all that. I don't think that's that's not a... That's not a smart policy, and I don't think it's ethically justified either. No, I I, I agree. I, I think um, you know, the some, I think there's a few salient facts about New Zealand's methane emissions from agriculture. One is that uh, we are not currently adding greatly to warming, uh, and if 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 recent trends over the last fifteen years continue, we will be adding very little to warming. But we um, we do contribute a lot in an ongoing way to warming. So our ongoing warming associated with our agricultural sector is high, but in per capita terms, and that is why we get pressure to reduce it where that's possible. Uh, and that that pressure is is reasonable. People people can make arguments for for freeing up some of that warming space uh, because we do occupy a lot of it. And uh, and that that seems a reasonable question to to pose, um, and I think farmers are quite right to say, well, you know, we aren't we aren't continuing to warm the world terribly much. That's that's a reasonable and relevant point, but it doesn't mean you have a right um, to all the warming space you're already occupying. What it does do, I think, it, it, though, if you're prepared to accept the point, if you take on board the point, yes, we we acknowledge that the more we can reduce methane. Um, the better, then there is quite a legitimate discussion to be had about fairness, equity, burden sharing. You know, for example, at what point, if we keep reducing, at what point maybe uh, should we start getting rewarded with it? Under the ETS, with um, other industries under ETS, I mean, it's not just a pure application of a, of a price. It's you've got free allocation, which is an adjustment to competitiveness issues, and I can see no reason why. Uh, you know, past recent trends, for example, in methane emissions from agriculture would not be taken into account in how you apply the pricing. And it, it's not, I don't think, going to be saying we're going to have from tomorrow is a price on agricultural methane and it's, and it's X dollars a tonne. Uh, I think that would be very, very crude measure. Um, but there's, there's plenty of scope, provided you can get the engagement of government around the warming point. So I'm not sure who wants to answer this one, but maybe explain a wee bit more about New Zealand agriculture's contribution to warming rather than emissions per se. We want to talk about that warming outcome. Yep, sure. So 
Uh, well, I will talk about emissions and, and warming together. So in, in 1850, we didn't have any ruminants, more or less. So we had a very small number of ruminants. Uh, between 1850 and about uh, 1960, uh, emissions from methane emissions from ruminants went up uh, a lot, um, from zero to about, um, uh, what is it, about a megaton um, of, uh, of methane per annum, something like that. To, to roughly contemporary levels anyway. And it's it's gone up and down a little bit, up a little bit since then. What that meant is that we we realised uh, quite a lot of warming um, in that period between about 1850 and about 1970 or 1980. Um, we ended up with about, what's that, about um, 12 ten thousandths of a degree from methane. Um, and that level's been drifting up since, uh, since the but but since emissions peaked in um, uh, what's that around about 2006 I think isn't it for methane um, the emissions have come down a little and the warming uh, since 2006 from methane has been pretty constant so there hasn't been much warming since about 2006 associated with our methane but we still have that quite large warming that, that grew up between 1850 and, and about the turn of the century. So there's been quite a lot of warming there and there's, and there's ongoing warming because of nitrous oxide as well. So those two components um, both contribute to New Zealand's warming. And actually New Zealand's warming from methane is considered, from agricultural methane, is considerably larger at present than its warming from uh, fossil CO2. And that's just a reflection of our, uh, the composition of our economy. Did he freeze? Are you still there, Dave? I'm still here. Is that? That's right. That, yep. That's good. No, you just just start. I wasn't sure. Yep. Um, so earlier we talked about fairness and equity and around some of these things. And I just want to draw it a wee bit more about is that we talk about agriculture as a whole, but sheep and beef farmers are quick to say, well, hang on, our industry has, for various reasons, shrunk in terms of area and numbers. Um, I think I've seen it bandied around that sheep and beef emissions have dropped 30% since 1990 or thereabouts. Um, yep. Is that correct? Um why does sheep and beef as an industry have to do more? Well, could I answer that just from my perspective? Um, it's interesting that the when the EU did its first burden sharing arrangement under the first version of its ETS, one criterion they did have there for determining the burden sharing was action since 1990. And the point of that was, if you'd already been doing lots to reduce your emissions, early on, then you shouldn't be penalised compared with a country that, this is national level, compared with a country that had done not much at all. Um, in a sense, you've got a similar issue here within the industry. And in my sense, it, it, is, a, it is a legitimate point to bring into the discussion. It doesn't, to my mind, it's not self-evident what the conclusion should be, but I, it, I think it definitely is a legitimate point what, you know, what has happened since, since um, 1990, one of the many factors that you might want to um, introduce. The other one around all this about agriculture is um, the Paris Agreement. I think we mentioned that early on. It said um, text food production. So Agriculture is more significant, I guess, in total emissions and the debate over the amount in New Zealand, the amount of warming it impacts. But 
is food production protected by the Paris Agreement, or what, how does that actually apply? Are you, are you asking whether food production overrides the Paris Agreement? And the answer is no. The, the re reference to food production goes right back to their first climate change convention, the UNFCCC, right back in 1994. And the point it makes there in its core article is that we must adjust, we must reduce emissions, and we need to do it in a way that allows uh, food production to adjust. So basically it's saying the, the, the core is we've got to do this. Secondly, we need to do it in a way that doesn't prejudice food production, but it's not saying that because of the sacredness of food, um, we don't have to reduce emissions. So I, I think that's a, a, a false argument, that one. And it's not, you can't interpret the Paris Agreement um, as saying that food production is more important than emissions reduction. It's, it's preserving food, food production as a necessary part of the way that you reduce emissions, I think is the way to look at it. So that is again, I mean, that's again a point that, that can be legitimately raised in discussions. You know, are we, are we saying we're going to, you know, should we be sacrificing food production? It, it, it's, a, it's a legitimate point to be brought in. I just want to come back again because it is held up a lot about the 30% reduction and Adrian addressed it before. Maybe Dave, you want to expand on that. Um, that's not a get out of jail free card saying, hey, we're 30% down where we were in 1990. There are still legitimate reasons for sheep and beef farmers to um, reduce their impact on warming still further. Yeah, I mean, there are arguments that could be made uh, in, in favour of doing so. You, you don't normally say to someone that just because you've decreased your pollution, uh, in recent periods that they automatically get to keep the pollution they, they're now making. So if somebody's, you know, got a fire next door and, and the fire was really big and the smoke was really, really bad and it's de de decreased by 30%, you don't necessarily say, well, that's fine then. You can just keep keep that smoke coming over my property indefinitely. Um, there are good reasons to continue to try and work at methane. Um, I think that the... The real conversation that the, the 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 focusing on warming brings up is where that balance is, and that that balance between what um, what freeing up from warming space you get by decreasing methane versus slowing the 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 ongoing warming from CO2 is a is a really relevant conversation to have. And um, I think I'd like to think the thing that we've done by opening this conversation is. Um, is move away from the idea that methane has to go to zero. I think that's the really significant feature in this is that it's pretty clear that you can have an ongoing level of methane emissions that that uh, that doesn't add further warming, which isn't true of carbon dioxide. That's the really valuable insight. What the optimal level of warming from methane is uh, seems to me a much more open question. And I, I have heard people make fairly sensible arguments for anywhere from a from a decrease of of 10% because that's what would mean that we're not adding further to warming to about a 50% cut which says let's undo some of that warming uh, and uh, let's undo as much of that warming as we think we can um, but I think that range from 50 to 100% is is off the table for now for really good scientific as well as policy reasons. Uh, but but it certainly doesn't mean that you default to the to the to the shallowest reductions you can think of. So we'll come back 
talking about some of the science and application, but one of the things I did want to address, and I was going to start with it earlier, but we sort of got into some of the, the, the other details, but we've got the Zero Carbon Act, the Emissions Trading Scheme, and I want to talk a bit about Hawaka Ekanoa. Um, what's the... How's the, the the science, the 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 international agreements, and so on, been implemented in the Zero Carbon Act and 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 the Emissions Trading Scheme? How do those two interact? What are, I guess, um, how's methane treated under those at the moment, and what's that going to mean for farmers? Well, let's let's start with one basic fact, and I think this is going to be more and more evident um, or self-evident that it's really important to separate methane from CO2, particularly long-term gas. Um, that's come out as actually a paper coming out very shortly, which is a, amazingly a consensus paper amongst just about everybody who's ever written on metrics, including people that disagree fundamentally about uh, some ethical questions. But what they're all saying is that you've, you've, got, to, you've got to report this stuff separately whether it's in targets or, or reporting of emissions. Otherwise, you've got no way of knowing where a country, for example, is heading towards net zero. So that point is, is firmly established. And the and so perfectly consistent, I think, with the, uh, with the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement does not say um, that you shouldn't separate or can't separate. Um, it does require us at the moment reporting in terms of the GWP 100, but it doesn't stop a country um, also reporting uh, and separating methane out. It doesn't stop a country doing whatever it wants to do uh, domestically. Um, the obstacle we have, I think, in New Zealand to doing the sensible thing, uh, including internationally, is this idea that we might be criticised if we did this, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, the minister thinks that we've suffered international reputational damage. But in my view, um, this point is going to be become more and more uh, self-evident and will break through into the policy community. And if people are criticising it, it's, it's really their problem. If other countries are criticising it, um, or particularly Europeans, it's actually their problem, not ours, because providing what you are doing is demonstrably um, accurate and, and demonstrably not some tricky way of getting a free ride and has full environmental integrity, then then it's it's, it's highly compelling. Um, so I think at the moment we're going to have something of a, we risk having something of a disconnect between the way we do things domestically, where we are effectively, we have achieved separate um, treatment of uh, separate investigation or analysis of methane because it's not in the ETS and we have Hewaka Ekinoa doing just that. Um, but we, we there's a disconnect between that and the international settings where, as you may recall from our Glasgow pronouncements, um, we're looking at doing two thirds of our NDC target through international purchasing. And at the moment, um, although we don't have an international carbon market, the assumption is that international carbon market will all be based around um, the fungible, uh, what, what is a very bad idea, a fungible methane and CO2 together. So I think, I think to my sense that the main, the main point to be taken from all this is that we have complete freedom in what we do domestically. And that's, I think, the point that the uh, the industry can talk about with government, sensible policies for New Zealand. Um, the government will do what it has to do for its international accountability, but nothing in the Paris Agreement prevents us 
having the most sensible policy, workable policies possible for uh, methane CO2 in New Zealand. So, and what's the role or what could be the role, what should be the role of Hewaka Ekenoa in that to try and achieve that and get that outcome? Well, my, my view, and I'm not sure to what, to what extent it will be possible, but my view is one thing that it could do is, well, I think you've already got through Hewaka Ekenoa, at least a, you, you've got a commitment to, by the farming community to be part of the solution, to, to use a, a cliche. But the second thing it'll do is that it could help with this engagement around warming and then I think that would greatly facilitate any discussions you want to have about method of application of pricing um, burden sharing within that all that all that cluster of implementation issues that you're that you're going to have and I, I also think it's this will be one of these areas of policy where we're not going to get a beautiful final finished product from day one it's clearly going to be subject to adjustments and review as we go along so um, you know, I wouldn't be too despondent if it doesn't look perfect initially, but the, the key thing, I think, is to make some of these more more general points, the more fundamental points, get them part of that, get them acknowledged as something that the government will be prepared to engage on. So one of the other questions we want to just draw out on that, and you talked, both of you at the start, about the issue is warming, and that's the thing we want to focus on, but if the key issue is warming, but with all this, we're already talking about a pricing framework before we have the methane targets around warming and so on. I mean, why are we doing it in that order? Is it possible to reverse the order or is there a better way of doing it or is that the best way to do it? Well, because people scramble to get, you know, we, we needed to have, that's the way things operate. You, you're, you're judged so much on your targets. You know, it's something that you, you need to flourish your targets. We had to flourish our targets and, uh, in Glasgow, and I'm afraid that's the way it goes. But you know, there's, there's going to be an iterative process here, and and it, it seems to me that the you know the the 10 percent there's two issues. There's there's up to 2030, and then there's 2030 to 2050. And I think for the sector and for methane, it's that 2030 to 2050 period that's going to be critical. Um, you know, you, you you've got the 10 percent target for 2030, um, which is not going to be it's not going to be Armageddon for the industry, but much more serious issues will arise over the over the post 2030 stuff. So that's my sense again is um, you you just have to accept that the way this is this has happened for, for combination of international and domestic reasons, and 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 accept that there's going to be adjustments as we go along. But again, it comes back to the point: the quality of that engagement with government around these core issues is going to be critical. And it's that engagement uh, coming back again about trying to get adoption um, from the top down of the GWP star metric is going to be the key. And that, I mean, uh, no, I wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, absolutely not. I, no. I think no, don't no. That's probably not. That's no. not the best way. To, that that's a consequence. That that the, the okay. adoption of GWP star. I mean, it's not absolutely. It's actually a very convenient way of doing things. It's not absolutely necessary. You can do things by just separating the gases. The important thing is not please adopt this metric, but please acknowledge the warming issue and let's have a conversation on that basis. It, it, it's a consequence of the warming point, not not um, not what leads to it. Yeah, I think I think the essential thing is realising that um, we have permanent warming from CO2 and temporary warming from methane and letting policy reflect that 
um, the same way we do in any other setting, in any other pollution setting, we would draw that distinction. So it's about having climate policy. As we get serious about climate policy, we have to have it shadow best practice. And uh, and this is a point about environmental integrity. And I, th I think once you've made that step and you realise how the gases compare, you know, in terms of warming, design your policy structures around that, make them flexible enough to account for the fact that different governments will take different perspectives, that society changes over time, uh, that there are always different, you know, the different trade contexts and the different international, uh, the international context, context evolves over time, uh, and do it that way. Um, I think that's the right approach. I, I don't think we should get hung up on specifics about 2050 targets right now. I think we should work on creating a creating a, a, a mechanism so that we don't pretend that methane is fungible with CO2 because the because the climate certainly doesn't think it is. And one of the more specific issues, so we talked, you know, global agreements, we're talking um, national standards and that sort of thing, but ultimately think globally, act globally, that old, that, uh, act locally, that old um, cliche. At the moment, we're out asking farmers or suggesting to farmers that they know their own number, but the, the models, um, there's an issue with GWP not working at individual farm level or not really being appropriate for that. And this often actually gets asked, why, if that's the, the metric we are encouraging, why are we still using GWB 100 at the farm level? Yeah. Know, whether so, either or both of you want to talk about why that is? Yes, I think that um, the best thing to use would actually be kilograms of, or tonnes, if you like, of uh, methane, or tonnes of nitrous, um, or tonnes of CO2. Uh, those are the right, those are the base units. Um, we multiplying your tons of methane by 28 or 33 or something doesn't really make a lot of sense. It just means that people like me, when we come to think about warming, have to divide them by 28 or 33 or whatever. Um, we should use tons of those of those variables, um, and then we can we can through climate models uh, and through simple mechanisms like GWP, so we can tell you what that what that might mean for warming. Now, the, the issue for GWP star specifically at farm level is that because it's taking the difference of two uh, numbers, it can jump around two quite noisy numbers. It can jump around quite a bit, and that can make you look like you're contributing a lot. If you have a, if you have a year where you produce more methane, and, you're, and 20 years ago, you just happened to produce less, it looks like you're really adding to warming and, and, and vice versa. If you happen to be down a bit this year and you happen to be up a bit 20 years ago, it suddenly makes you look like you're handing back all this warming space. And actually, it, it would be better done over a five-year running mean or something like that if you were to do it. But basically, I think that at the farm scale, it's the sort of um, – it would give you warming compared to that period 20 years ago or some baseline period, but it, but it but GWP star would not give you all the warming your farming causes unless you added in added that in explicitly. Now, I happen to be working on that, um, but uh, it's always going to be a noisy field. It's it's a, a bit fiddly. It would be an approximation. Um, I, I personally think you're much better to know your number have a handle on the kilograms or tons of methane you're producing uh, and, and use that as the basic kind of core variable in the policy approach. 
So, Adrian, I don't know whether you want to expand on that and talk about um, yeah, your view and how that might fit with Haywaka Ekenoa. Well, I think well, I do agree with what Dave just said, and I think it's actually, as far as I understand it, it's entirely consistent with the current approach in Haywaka Ekenoa, where you are actually um, looking at this in terms of weights, in terms of tons. So I think it's highly consistent and, and desirable, yeah. But the, it, the GWP star, just to clarify on that, requires a reasonably long-term data set for a farm to get a, a meaningful number. Is that what you were saying there, Dave? Yes, uh, and it would also probably require, um, uh, it, it, even if you had, say, a 1970 reference period, um, it would require for, for long, for centennial farms and farms like that, it would actually require an additional term to account for the warming caused up to the start of that period. Uh, mm -hmm. And then it would be noisy in the way I was describing earlier um, as well. So like you, you could do it, but it, but it, it wouldn't be, the, um, it doesn't strike me as the most promising way forward because people would end up having noisy arguments about, um, about the fact that they happen to be down a bit this year and up a bit that year, and it would just get a bit opportunistic, and I just don't think that's the best way to go. But you still feel it's worthwhile farmers starting to do those calculations, work out those numbers, even if it's in tons of methane, nitrous oxide, carbon dioxide at the moment? Yeah, yeah that's right. And I mean, if they, um, you know, in an ideal world, I'd quite like to build an online tool they could use to approximate their contribution of warming over time. Um, uh, you know, if, if I had enough time, um, it, 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 it could be done, but um, but easily the best place to start, I think, is is on just just understanding how much methane and nitrous you're you're emitting into the atmosphere now. Um, and then you can build some policy structures around it. And then, and then you, you know, we're going to learn as we go as well, I think. But um, but I think I think it's really important to to get started on that. And a sensibly designed policy suite um, would be able to deal with those with that, that those weight variables that that we've been talking about. As long as I've been in this job, one of our old saws, if you like, or truisms, has been: if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. Yeah, and I think that, that's, that's absolutely sheep right. Sheep cattle or, or yeah. um, greenhouse gases. And the weight is the simplest variable. It is the variable that is actually coming out of the herd. It's the one that's coming out of the herd. We can we can work out the rest from that, but but that's the one that the herd is producing. So that that's where the science starts, I think. Uh, just follow if I could follow on from what uh, Dave just said. I mean, another aspect is I think people don't probably realise the extent to which New Zealand is a somewhat of a, a pioneer here, um, both in the work that Hewaka Ekenoa is doing around the, the pricing issue, but even having set a hard target for methane um, nationally. So that work, whatever we come up with, is going to attract, I think, quite a lot of international interest. But also, coming back to the political point that we made earlier, it could also attract or gain quite a lot of international respectability for what we might be doing in New Zealand. And I think that would tend to take away this argument that we, we can't do this because we might be criticised by people who have always had done it another way. Yeah. I think it's 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 crazy to say that we shouldn't think about warming and climate change. If you find yourself if you find yourself articulating that position, then then you're trying to hide something. You know that that's a really bad argument at at any scale. Okay, so I guess the last question is: Is it 
you know, is Haywalker Ekanoa the right way forward? Is it what the industry should be engaging with versus going straight into the ETS or some of the other options that are out there? Well, personally, I'm quite um, anti uh, methane going into the ETS because I think it it takes a backward step in terms of environmental integrity. It um, it pretends that those that, that uh, temporary warming from methane is fungible with the permanent warming from CO2, and that is um, that is just wrong. Uh, within the ETS, I think there's a bunch of risks that you'd face. One is that you'd inherit the increasing price on carbon dioxide. You'd probably uh, inherit um, uh, steepenings to that price associated with underperformance in the carbon dioxide uh, realm in terms of making progress towards meeting carbon budgets. Um, uh, you would inherit any rises in international prices on carbon anyway. Uh, and I don't think you, I don't think there's good reasons for you to, to face those things. You'd also be facing, um, by my reckoning, it's $65 a tonne. If your average cow emits about 0.1 tonnes of methane per annum, uh, and you use a multiplier of 28 for GWP 100, you'd be looking at about $182 per cow per, per year. And that um, that is irrespective of whether you are, um, you know, you, if you're reducing your herd size and you're, you're not contributing to warming, um, you're still being taxed as though you were permanently contributing to warming with 28 units of CO2. It just doesn't, it, that's not the right answer. Um, and I think that it would be, uh, it would be a way of being able to in, impose, putting you in the ETS would also be a, a way of reintroducing that minus 50 to minus 100% emissions reductions targets. If you're in the ETS, if they're allowed to pretend that there's no difference between temporary and permanent warming, why not net zero? So I, th I think there's several really compelling reasons why you don't want to go into the ETS. Yes, I'd, I'd add to what Dave said. I think one point that has come through from the last few years of work on this is that an ETS with CO2 and methane fungible is looking highly problematic. So that would be a main reason. So you're not going to get, um, I think the, the way the Hewaka Ikinoa route is a much more uh, promising route to get if you're looking for optimal treatment of methane, including all the concerns around fairness, et cetera. I mean, I guess you could imagine, um, you could imagine a separate window fenced off from CO2 and have a methane trading system. Um, and that would that would mean you'd be insulated from uh, international carbon prices, for example. But the way, as, as Dave was saying, the way the international system looks like going at the moment is initially anyway, your, your carbon markets, whether they're uh, bilateral or, or international, are probably going to be initially um, based on GWP 100 and fungible. So, Although I think some countries may choose not, may simply choose not to include methane um, in their carbon trading arrangements for, for that very reason. Uh, last question, I think, and this is probably one for you, Dave. Um, discussion: What do you think of the targets, or what do you think of, or should be targets under the the uh, under for all this sort of stuff? Well, I think um, I think somewhere in that zone. Uh, between minus 10% that is the no additional warming and and about uh, the, the minus 47 to minus 50% range that um, the upper end of the government's current targets are, are probably where the public conversation will be. 
I think um, you can advance a whole bunch of arguments across that space. My, my own view would be, you know, probably somewhere in around 20, but uh, but that's just me. You know, <laughs> I could make my arguments and, and people might buy them or not. Um, the, the, the thing I would want to do, though, is say that the targets conversation is a different conversation from the metrics conversation. GWP star does not imply a target. It's a means for comparing things, uh, but it doesn't actually set what those set what the goals are. And I, I liken it to, to this, that imagine you have no way of knowing how fast people are driving on the roads except their fuel consumption. So you've got this coarse grain variable and you're trying to figure out how, you know, people drive too fast, they burn fuel at a, at a fast rate. So you limit the amount of uh, their, you know, how, how much, how often they can refuel. And then you, somebody invents the speed gun. Uh, and so now you can measure speed. And so now you can set a target based on, based on the ability to measure speed. That doesn't, and that's, I think, what we're doing with GWP Star. We're, we're providing a simple way of actually measuring the variable you want, which is warming, uh, from, from different input variables. And, but, but having a speed gun doesn't tell you what the speed limit should be. And, and that's the thing, that it's a technology that helps you make a much better uh, fist of, of, the, of the job you're trying to do but it doesn't actually tell you what the target should be. That's a, that's a different conversation. And people will have their own views about, you know, how much warming, uh, how much warming we should have from, from the agriculture sector in New Zealand. Um, and GWP star doesn't tell you what that number should be. It just provides a good way of mapping at large scales uh, between um, emissions and warming. And GWP 100, the old way of doing it, doesn't. All right. Hey, look, we will um, wrap it up there and because um, we've certainly come in towards the end of the time, but certainly all the end of the questions. And I suspect we could keep talking about this for a long while. And I know it's going to get keep getting talked out, out and about there in the world. But hey, look, Dave, Adrian, thank you very much for your time. I know both you've got a few things you want to get away to this evening and it's nearly the end of the year as well and Christmas and things. So, but really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.